have a square, small, maybe 12 by 12, orange dry erase board that I have kept hanging somewhere in my bedroom, usually by my bedside. Right now it's across my room. Um, that says, we cannot place feminism outside the lived reality of women's lives, even one individual woman. If we disregard even one, then we're not embodying feminism. So I'm going to talk a little bit about a feminist approach to Christianity. And you all sent me some questions, um, and I'm going to engage um, this short little talk um, with those four questions. The first is, what are the basics of a feminist approach to Christianity or Christian faith? The next one is regarding decentering patriarchy in the Christian tradition. How do you, how do I approach the Bible? The third is about Mary Daly. How did Mary Daly influence my experience or approach to Christianity? Want you to know that's my favorite question. <laughs> and then the last one is about feminism and Christianity. How do you think it can and should look like in community? So my name is Xochitl Alviso. I love all things feminism. <laughs> and I am very um, strongly identified as Christian. And I miss you all. I haven't seen you all in a long time. Um, I hope everyone's doing well. But I wanted to start then with that little um, sign that I keep by my bedside, because in some ways, um, that's one of the most basic kind of tenets, right, of, of feminism, is to take seriously the lived reality of women's lives. Um, when you think about just like, what is the starting point of feminism? It is that. It is like, the full acknowledgement of women as full and complete human beings, um, worthy of participating in all aspects, right, of existence, of human life, in, of society. And the reason why that even needs to be said, the reason why that even needs to be a starting point, right, is because we have a history of not doing that. You know, our human history is one in which um, certain voices um, dominate. You know, certain groups of humans dominate, um, have are given more authority in our cultures, in our societies. And one of the ways, you know, that that grouping has happened is based on sex, right? Being male or female, or gender, you know, being women or men. Um, and then we already know the limits of that, right? But the thing is, the basics of it is that we have categorized humans in such a way that we hold some in higher regard than others. So I'm going to give you three, um, three starting points as the basics, right, of a feminist approach to religion. So this is the first question. So I'm pulling these from a, a text written by Rita Gross. Um, she was a Buddhist scholar. Mm, trying to find the book. It's around here somewhere. But um, 
the book title is actually called Feminism and Religion. So it's pretty a perfect primer for people who um, who are interested more on the subject. But one of the first things that femini- a feminist approach to religion starts with is that all theological thinking is derived from human experience, right? All world constructive thinking is centered around human experience. Like we don't get that kind of thinking outside of humans. And so feminist, a feminist approach then explicitly acknowledges this and doesn't pretend or doesn't claim to have some kind of neutral or objective or normative understanding of things or knowledge or interpretation that, um, that is held as more true for all people. So when you acknowledge, right, that all of our, our world constructive, constructive thinking and interpretation is mediated through human experience, then you're going to pay attention to which humans have participated in the interpretations that have taken root in our culture and in our society. So that would be the first thing, right? Okay, so from there, the second point then is that religious traditions, therefore, require that women's experience be taken into account, right? So if if we acknowledge that there are some embedded prejudices, injustices, um, yeah, exclusions that have dominated, that have, t- that have dominated our traditions, that have had a role in the interpretation of them, if we keep that in focus, then what we want to do to counter that is to take seriously the experience and voices and perspectives of those that have been systemically excluded. So feminists attend to that experience, you know, first of women, right? But not just that, right? Feminism expanded its its framework, you know, almost immediately to recognize what the, the logic of the system of sexism or misogyny is the same logic, right, of creating hierarchies, right, among humans that are also at play in other prejudices, right? Like classism, racism, ableism. So, you know, though a feminist approach starts with the experience of women, it also acknowledges that the logics of the system that creates the need for that, uh, for giving attention to women is the same one that creates a need for giving attention then to other marginalized voices. Okay, so that's the second point, right? That we have to take women's experience into account, their voices, their perspectives, their contributions, just like with all other marginalized persons. And then the third kind of basic of of a feminist approach to religion is then that women, and again, along with other marginalized voices, have a right to name reality. One of the ways that this gets captured, right, is Mary Daly says, to exist humanly is to be able to name the self, the world, and God. And that's just another way of saying that women's experience and voices matter. 
And so, and that, and that it makes a difference then to our world creative, creating systems and language. So this is the naming part that women and other marginalized voices have a right to help name, participate in creating the language that we use around the things that matter to us. And so to kind of wrap up that first question of uh, the basics of a feminist approach to Christian faith, one of the ways to kind of encapsulate this is that feminists do not take for granted that there is some neutral or objective or necessarily normative perspective on anything. (laughs) And this includes religion. And so there is no neutral place from which we can say this is the truth or this is the right interpretation. All of it is mediated through human experience. And in light of that, whose human experiences are we taking seriously? Whose human experiences have we systemically excluded? And so whose human experiences do we have to bring in intentionally? So that would be the basics of a feminist approach to religion. And you can then apply that, right, that these lenses, these tenets, to other areas of life as well and society. Okay, so now, what does this mean for the way in which we approach the Bible? How do we decenter? How do we decenter patriarchy, right, in the Christian tradition? Okay, but first the definition. What are we talking about when we talk about patriarchy? So here I'm going to give you two definitions. One is from a feminist theologian, Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza, and she says it's a social system maintaining male dominance male dominance and privilege based on a female submission and marginality. That's not the the smoothest wording. So here's just a little reworking of that same definition. Patriarchy as a social system privileges some over others based on gender. But the system is not maintained in isolation. It interrelates with other systems of oppression like classism racism, etc. So that's one definition. Or the much more simple, not much more simple, another definition that I like is by uh, from Bell Hooks, great um, cultural critic. She says, patriarchy is another way of naming institutionalized sexism, which is pretty simple enough, right? Another way of naming institutionalized sexism. One of the other ways that I talk about it is embedded sexism. You know, the way that sexism has embedded itself in the social, cultural structures of our world. Um, She also continues that males as a group have and do benefit the most from patriarchy and from the assumption that they are somehow superior to females or women and should therefore have a greater right to name things, really, and to interpret Okay, so that's patriarchy. So then how do we decenter this? We know that this is an embedded prejudice, right, in our culture, in our society, and the Bible as a as a product, right, mediated through humans, has gotten caught up in that also, right? 
patriarchy is embedded in our Bible. So then how do, how do we approach that, taking a feminist approach in mind? Well, one of the things then is to note the patterns. Come at the Bible and make note of the patterns, right, of the ways that these prejudices have embedded themselves in systemic ways, right? So, for example, one of the things when I read uh, you know, one of the books in the Bible, when I'm kind of engaging with the scriptures, I'm paying attention to things like, who are the characters? Which are the characters that get a name and which are the ones that don't? Who are, who, dom- you know, whose experiences are dominating in this story, right? Like, what's their role in the story? And then I pay attention, obviously, right, to the, to the sex and gender, right, uh, that is presented of, of these characters. And I know patterns. And so if I start to see like, oh, this is interesting because, you know, the women in this story don't get named. You know, they, they're not given a name. They're just like side characters. And the main characters are, you know, the men and they have names. Well, then I then one of the things that feminist scholars do when they're engaging with the Bible is they're mining for what is not being filled in. What are the gaps? Um, what is there without being explicitly explicitly named, right? And then this is where research, you know, where it's important to do that social historical research on any text, right? Because then you can... You know, we like look into sources, we look into what's going on politically at the time, what's going on with the household dynamics at the time, you know, what does it mean that this person is from this area? And so you go back in there to understand the, the larger context. And then you also place that in the larger context of the whole tradition and the and for example, the trajectory of the scriptures, right? If we have a lens, right, of, of the trajectory of the Christian scriptures as being one that is good news for the poor, that gives us then a way to critique our own scriptures, to, to be um, discerning about the fact that the scriptures are mediated through people and culture. And so our voices then become part of the living word. Our voices then help bring new insight and fill in the gaps to even this text that's in print, but that we consider living, that consider, that we consider to have a right to help interpret. We have a right to help interpret these scriptures. And so we bring the multiplicity of our voices and perspectives into how we understand them. So really, when you talk about how do we decenter patriarchy in Christianity and how do we approach the Bible from a feminist lens or with a feminist lens or from a feminist perspective, we do that by expanding the community of interpretation. We do that by hearing one another's take and insights into um, the text. And sometimes, this is my favorite part, of course, is we also do it by getting creative. By, you know, um, the Jewish tradition has um, the practice of midrash, right? Where they precisely do this. They precisely create, you know, these commentaries that help 
the community understand like, hmm, there seems to be a contradiction here. How do we make sense of this contradiction? And so they have midrash. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but hopefully you all can, somebody can correct us <laughs> on how we should say that word. Um, but we do that too, right? Our communities become the ones that ha that can figure out and have a commentary that helps us make sense of the scriptures, the gaps, the contradictions, and um, and we then get creative about filling them in. So sometimes there's a way, right? Preaching is is part of this, right? We have you know we have texts that are like favorite stories, and they get you. We hear one repeated interpretation over and over, you know, across you know context and places and churches and then all of a sudden someone brings in new a new interpretation a new way of seeing that same story and it makes sense that's the thing right we realize oh my gosh that is another way of thinking about that and it's totally consistent with what's written there but we have just sometimes we settle right we settle into a dominant way of thinking and we miss out so a feminist approach then expands the community of interpretation to include more voices and that and and is comfortable playing with the text and taking seriously that it's a living word that we get to bring our own voices to. Okay, we're doing good. We're at 17 minutes. If you want to take a pause and uh Go get yourself some more coffee. <laughs> this is a good place before we go into the next two questions. Okay, now we get to move on to Mary Daly. How does she influence my experience or approach to Christianity? Well, first, who was she? Mary Daly was a Catholic philosopher and theologian. Back in the 1960s, she was working on her PhD. She went to Europe to work on her PhDs. Actually, she got two PhDs. And she went there because women in the 1960s, um, Catholic women in particular, um, were not granted PhDs in theology. And so she went to Europe to do work on hers. And she was very much influenced, right? I mean, by the feminist movement, the women's liberation movement, and existentialism. You know, I mean, this, um, what do you call it, intellectual movement that was... Um, you know, in the air at the time. And what she does is she writes this, like, earth-shaking book, or maybe church-shaking book. Um, the Church and the Second Sex is the title of it, in which she puts on paper, right, brings in the strongest terms possible the charge of sexism against the church against Christianity. She's really the one who makes the strongest case in print, in book form, with like evidence after evidence after evidence of just this embedded sexism that had taken root in Christianity and, and in the Catholic Church in particular, which was her tradition. And the thing about that book is that as um, indicting as it was, right, of Christianity and the Catholic Church, she was writing it in hopes of the church's repentance. She was writing it fully, with full expectation that the church, once it realized this sin, right, within itself, would choose to repent. 
Okay, so that is not what ended up happening. And in fact, she was an observer in the Vatican, at Vatican II. She was one of the people that was allowed, you know, with the media um, to be on kind of this balcony level looking down, um, you know, silent observer. And that experience for her pretty much kind of solidified her um, hopelessness for Christianity, her uh, judgment that ultimately Christianity and, you know, other religions, right, of like God the Father, that have an image of God the Father, are irredeemably patriarchal. That they there is no hope for them to repent from the sin of sexism. And so one of the, in one of her books, I think it's um, the beginning of gynecology, she depicts the scene, you know, of observing Vatican II. And she talks about, you know, the rows and rows and rows of these men filing in, you know what I mean, for the Vatican II session um, in their robes, you know, so she talks about the men in dresses, you know, and their fancy hats and everything. And they're all just filing in colorful, you know, and their regalia and stuff. And then the only women present are, there was one order of religious sisters that was present, but they also were silent observers. And she talked about the way they walked in, you know, with their black garb, uh, with their heads down, you know, in this very kind of silent and submission, submissive role. And, and then, you know, kind of watch the proceedings of Vatican II. And there had been a lot of hope that uh, the ordination of women would be something that the church would change, the Catholic church would change its mind on. And it didn't. And um, this is when, you know, they changed the mass from Latin to, you know, whichever the language of the place is, the vernacular. Um, so that did happen, and there was a lot that happened too in terms of integrating liberation theology, but not any moves on on you know on the side of the church for um, repenting of its embedded sexism and making things different for women in the church or including them in the decision making or in ordination and things like that. So really, after Vatican II, she was like she like you know. What do you call it? Washed her hands of Christianity. Turned, you know, she repented from it. She turned around, you know what I mean? And went in a different direction. So her work for me, to her chagrin, <laughs> her work made it possible, actually, for me to engage and stay in Christianity. Because what she did was that she, her feminist critique, allowed me to stay to see and envision Christianity and the way that we embody it beyond the limits of the way it is embodied. So even though her resolve was that this was irredeemably patriarchal, her writing actually made me realize like, wow, it doesn't have to be this way. Like there's a different way of practicing Christianity. There's a different way of being church. The fact that, you know, the Catholic Church for her, right, was not choosing that way, didn't mean it wasn't possible for me, right? So yeah, to her great disappointment, I continued to be able to actually uh, engage in Christianity and was only able to do so because my feminist lens, her work and the work of other feminists, expanded my vision 
of what Christianity could be and kind of brought to life the the radical nature that's embedded within it. It made it more real in my imagination. It made it possible. Um, it freed kind of the revolutionary potential of the good news um, from the patriarchal constraints in how it generally exists. So it's weird, <laughs> but Mary Daly's, you know, um, charges and indictment of Christianity and the church uh, made it possible for me to um, have a more expansive vision of it and choose to stay. Um, so yeah, she pretty much, I give her the credit. She was not happy with me. I was a student of hers and she was not happy with me to continue to identify as Christian, but she understood it. <laughs> she grumbled at me a little bit, but then, you know, she got it. So here's the last question that you all gave me was, what then does this look like? A kind of a feminist feminism in Christianity or a feminist approach to Christianity. What then can this look like or should this look like in community? And you all are asking me my favorite question. Because for me, this is really a question about the nature of church. And mostly what I would say about this is that what it looks like in community is an expanding of the voices of interpretation, an expanding of the community of practice, an expanding of our understanding of what it means to live out Christianity, to embody it, to participate in the story, right, that that our scriptures give us that in effect are what we call the good news of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, right, the good news, the declaration, right, that that we that Christianity sees Jesus making is one that is good news. And how we understand that, how we participate in that, how we embody it must be done in community. And for me, doing, you know, bringing in the feminist approach or the feminist lens to that means that we do it in as messy, in as inclusive, in as experimental and creative way as possible. Because that's what it means to take the full dignity and worthiness and value of each human being into account. So for me, what we do as a feminist community of church, right, is that we are trying on, we're experimenting with this new way of life, one that addresses and works to dismantle systems that oppress. So sexism, yes, but also racism, ableism, classism, all the other ways in which create where we create hierarchies among humans that allow us to take some people into account more than others. And so for me, Christianity, right, and doing it in a feminist way pays attention to these systems and experiments and practices doing it differently. Practicing something as community that does not repeat those same 
embedded patterns that not only does it repeat them, but that explores, you know, a new way and practices it together and is willing to correct itself or to like change course or to reconsider again and again. And where do I get this? Where does this come from? For me, really, like the Gospel of Mark is my feminist manifesto. It's my Christian feminist manifesto. And I'm going to tell you why. The Gospel of Mark starts with the words, in the beginning of the good news. So we're already being told we have good news here. In the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we have this person who is, in a way, an ambassador of God, you know, in human form. And so in the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it quotes from Isaiah, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. So the beginning of the good news starts with someone being sent to prepare the way, right? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then from that quote from Isaiah, what we get is not Jesus, because right now Jesus is just a reference, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. But he's actually not in the picture yet. The first person in the picture is John the Baptizer, who appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See right there, that's it. A baptism of repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is basically the turning around, the turning away from being off the mark from ways that oppress, from ways that are unjust, from ways that silence, from ways that exclude. Repentance, you know, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is saying you can turn around from this, be forgiven, and move in a different direction. And that here's the thing about this gospel, this good news that this is possible. It's actually really hard and scary. It's actually scary to move in a new direction, to go into, um, yeah, a new way of practice, of being. And this is why the original ending of the Gospel of Mark ends with, you know, the women finding the empty tomb, being alarmed, right, being scared. And being told, don't be terrified. You know what I mean? You're looking for the one that was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. He's not dead. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead of you. In a way, again, he's gone ahead of you to prepare a way, right? He's gone ahead of you to Galilee. That's where you will see him, just as he told you. But the women went out, fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We're actually really scared to live into a new way. Be because revolution scares us. Repentance scares us. Practicing something that disrupts the systems that are already in place is not the easiest thing to do. And But the gospel, right, calls us to that. 
the revolution causes to that. And for me, that's where feminism and Christianity come together in a way that makes perfect sense to me. It's calling us to a new way that takes us all into account and takes us seriously and calls us to live differently with one another because of it. All right, y'all. I went a little over. I'm at 32 minutes, but hopefully you took that break and then we'll get to chat on Sunday. All right. Oh, actually, I wanted to leave you. One of you or, you know, one of the questions was, is Pup Church a way to do this? You know, to practice a feminist approach to Christianity or church. And we can talk more about that on Sunday. Sorry, I'm shuffling papers. But for now, what I want to leave you with is a benediction that we used to do at Pup Church. Our life is now. The call to love is now. Know only this moment, open and vulnerable, and dare to speak love's name. Today is the beginning of everything. Go in pieces with new life and drink in the spirit.